0: And welcome to Power Play. Tonight, exclusive details on a Syrian repatriation.
1: The conditions are horrendous. There is uh, a lack of uh, fresh water. Uh, They're living in tents.
0: Sources confirmed to CTV News that six women and their 13 children are coming home after years detained in Syrian prison camps. We'll bring you new details in moments. Then, debt debate. The American government has hit its legal borrowing limit, teeing up a congressional battle to avoid a debt default. We're live in D.C. with the latest coming up. Plus,
2: Ardern's exit. I know what this job takes, and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice.
0: New Zealand's prime minister is stepping down and our front bench panel of premiers will weigh in on what goes into the tough decision to leave politics. First though, To our breaking story, Canada has agreed to repatriate six women and their 13 kids from Syrian prison camps. That's according to Lawrence Greenspawn, the lawyer who represents them in a federal court case. Now, he says this repatriation, rather, agreement doesn't include four men who are also detained. Most of the detained Canadians have been in camps in Syria since 2019 uh, Judy Trin, CTV News, is Judy Trin is here. She broke the story earlier today, and, and you've got some new details. Hi, Judy. Thanks for being with Hi. us. I appreciate it. First of all, h- how did this happen? Because uh, this has been a long, ongoing fight for people advocating for these, uh, for people in these prisons to get them back to Canada. H- how did it actually come about?
3: Well, I would argue that it's the federal court case, right? So once it's before the federal court, all of a sudden it becomes front and center for global affairs. This is an issue that's easy to put on the back burner because it involves, you know, 40 Canadians who are far away. And they're not, they're a hot political issue if they're brought back here, but not necessarily if they're out of mind. So this court case happens. Uh, Lawrence Greenspan has been representing them. And he's been arguing the fact that their charter rights were breached because their detention in Syria can go on indefinitely because there's no way to try them there. And this morning, he gets an agreement with Global Affairs that they will repatriate, bring home six women and their 13 children. But it excludes those four men who are also part of the case.
0: And tell me more about that, because... For a long time, the government has said, look, if you went over there to fight with ISIS, it's not our job to bring you back. Is that the case with these four men? Is that, why are they not included in the group of people being repatriated?
3: That is the allegations, a suspicion that uh, politicians and global affairs has, that these were ISIS fighters, individuals who, who, foreign fighters who went to Syria to participate in the war against uh, Assad. Uh, What is interesting is that what came out in this court case is that the federal government has no proof of life. They have not, they don't even know for certain whether or not these men are still alive. Uh, there has been no contact with them since 2019. So this, these are the conditions in which we're working under. But what do they do have contact with are these women and these children.
0: And I know, for example, the lawyer, um, Lauren Greenspan for these people ha- has long argued you know from a political perspective too that it's that one um that one thing that justin trudeau said that the prime minister said once uh, a canadian is a canadian can i think we have the clip that really uh you know should mean that the federal government has to repatriate them let's listen to that for a second
1: the prime minister has famously said uh, canadian is a canadian is a canadian uh, these are canadian uh, men women and children they, none of them have been charged with any offenses they're being unlawfully detained in uh, in detention camps and prisons uh for years and uh our position always was that it's the responsibility of the Canadian government to
4: bring them home
0: so the government, even though the prime minister said that, the government has long fought that, right? And, and I remember, I was telling you earlier, I remember interviewing the public safety minister who said, like, again, no, they went there. That was their decision. It's not our job to bring them back. Plus, we don't have the ability to gather the evidence necessary if we were to bring them back to prosecute them. So... This is a really marked evolution, a really marked change from that position. Why?
3: There's a recognition that uh, these Canadians are in danger. Their lives are at risk. There was a recent human rights report that was published in December in which it said those camps are subjected to uh, disease. There have been uh, just, uh, here's some news. Just two days ago, one of those applicants, uh, a child, was in a tent fire the heater that they were using caught on fire and the mother was actually bathing her child in that tent at the time and basically shoved her child out of the tent in order to save the child's life. So you actually have these conditions in which are described by uh, Human Rights Watch as horrendous. Uh, They are subjected to actually artillery strikes and airstrikes from Turkish forces who are waging uh, conflict with uh, Kurdish authorities in Northeast Syria. So they're subjected to that as well. Before this federal court case even began, Vashi, there was a recognition by Global Affairs that some of these women and children qualified for uh, repatriation because of these increasing risks. But I should point out to you, even though we're talking about uh, bringing home 19 Canadians today, there are at least two dozen more Canadians that are still left uh, in those camps that are not uh, named, uh, that are not part of this agreement, but hopefully once a Judge and federal court decides on this case whether or not Canada violated their charter rights by leaving them in Syria, Uh, they will be impacted by the decision and perhaps they will be ordered by the judge. To be brought back home.
0: Okay, Judy, really appreciate those insights and those details. Uh, CTV's Judy Trin. For more on this, let's bring in someone who actually traveled to Syria and saw firsthand what the conditions are like at those two detention camps. Leah West is an assistant professor at the Norman Patterson School for International Affairs at Carleton University. Hi, Professor West. Hi, Leah. Good to see you. You as well. Thank you very much for making the time. Before we get into the decision that, that happened today, just describe for us what you saw in your visits, if you could.
2: So I was there in 2019. So at that time, these children and these women had only been in detention for uh, less than a year, and it was still horrific at the time. Um, makeshift living conditions, uh, tents that were not you know, weatherproofed for all seasons, um, children playing with water bottles, essentially, um, you know, Small children literally everywhere underfoot um, with women. And I was actually there during what ended up being a riot. And so, you know, a place that I'd walked and seen a number of children playing all of a sudden became a, a firing line because of a, a, of a riot that broke out. It, so it was really um, atrocious, horrendous conditions um, that were unsuitable for any child.
0: And I know it's been a while of you kind of articulating the the idea that you do think it was um, incumbent on the federal government to bring these women and these kids home. The government has long, for for a while at least, um, publicly said, and you and I have talked about this before, look, no, these are people who went over there to do the wrong, wrong thing. It's not our responsibility to bring them back. What in your estimation changed?
2: There's been a number of factors that have changed. What we do know is that the government uh, articulated a policy in 2021 um, and under that policy, if there was a fundamental change in circumstances, the government would have to reconsider their you know the starting point, which was no repatriations. We got word in December that that had happened for these women and children. And under that policy, there are six factors that the government would then consider to make its ultimate determination on whether or not to extend what they call extraordinary consular assistance. And based on those factors and based on the situation on the ground, um, you know, it was my assessment and, and that's what's happened, that the, the uh, factors were weighed in favor of repatriation because of the security situation that everyone on the ground continued to face, because the fact that the, the threat that any of these adults could pose on, on their return home can be mitigated with a variety of different measures. We've already seen that happen with three women who have been repatriated. Um, and because um, we've seen... Sic- repeatedly successful repatriations without any security incident to consular staff and security officials who are repatriating these individuals, not just to Canada, but we've also seen a number of other countries who have long resisted repatriations in the United Kingdom and Australia. They have recently also repatriated their their citizens. And there's been a really big push, especially on Canada from the international community. we heard about Human Rights Watch, but also from a UN Special Rapporteur. And because of uh, Canada's Canada's positioning at the UN, there was a real push to uh, get Canada to start to be part of the solution when it comes to ISIS detainees, rather than continuing to contribute to the problem.
0: So so final question for you. And unfortunately, I just have a minute left. But I do want to ask you, because my guess is a lot of Canadians watching right now are kind of sympathetic to the perspective like, oh, you did go over there to do something wrong. Why would we bring you back on the four men, for example, as part of this court case or any other Canadian men who went over there and are being detained? uh, You know, what is your response to those who say just leave them there?
2: That's not justice, right? If if the expect, if the our belief is that they went over to um, engage in acts of terrorism on behalf of ISIS, it is our responsibility, and we've actually committed to that in a variety of international documents, to try them for their crimes, to put them on trial and hold them accountable for what they did. But just re- detaining them indefinitely without putting them on trial doesn't give any justice to the victims, and it certainly uh, doesn't lead any... credence to this idea that we do hold people who commit those kinds of crimes and atrocities to uh, the rule of law we're not doing that now and the only way to actually do that properly is to repatriate them and to prosecute them here in canada and we may not be able to prosecute them for everything they've done because of the challenge with uh, evidence as you mentioned earlier but we definitely can prosecute them for certain offenses I've talked to these guys in prison. They've shared their stories with others. We do have some evidence, and we know that they travel to participate with ISIS, and that itself is a crime.
0: Okay, Leah, I'll leave it there. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Leah West is an assistant professor at the Norman Patterson School for International Affairs at Carleton University. Let's head south of the border now, where the U.S. has hit their $31.4 trillion debt ceiling, the legal limit on how much money the government can borrow. Congress now has to come to a deal to avoid a default on their debt. CTV News' Richard Madden is live for us from Washington. Hi, Richard. Break this down in real people terms. What what does that exactly mean, hitting their debt ceiling?
1: Well, first and foremost, Sebastian, congratulations for landing this gig. I don't think I've publicly had to the opportunity to congratulate <laughs> you. But bottom line here, uh, this so debt nice, ceiling man. crisis that we're reaching almost every year, it seems to be an annual event, is basically this. The U.S. has a credit card. Its limit is $31 trillion, which I think is what your credit limit is. Uh, and they've reached out. They've maxed out their actually, credit yes. card limit. Exactly. So they've maxed out their credit card. And the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, is sounding the alarms, urging Congress to come up with a deal to raise that debt limit. The clock is ticking. Uh, the government has activated what they call extraordinary measures to limit what they can spend, what entitlements can go out. But bottom line, it's now up to Congress to agree to raise that debt limit and how they will do that is now part of this whole new political brinksmanship and this new reality of a Republican majority in the House that are looking to expand their power and flex their muscles in this negotiations with the Democrats. So you have a lot of hardline Republicans demanding to cut spending, demanding more spending cuts, and you have Democrats saying, look, this is the last thing we want to do right now. For generations, we've raised the debt ceiling and there hasn't been uh, many political problems. There's an asterisk to that, but If the debt ceiling is not raised and if Congress cannot come to a deal, that could create a pretty cataclysmic economic fallout Everything from a recession in the U.S., which would pull the rest of the world into. You would lose investor confidence on Wall Street. The U.S. wouldn't be able to pay its bills and it could trickle down into your average American seniors on Social Security wouldn't get their checks. If you're in the military, you wouldn't get paid. So this is a very serious issue happening. But bottom line is both sides have about till June roughly to come together with a deal. But as I mentioned earlier, the clock is ticking. The stakes are high. Uh, both sides at this point refusing to budge.
0: I, I just have a few seconds. Is it, uh, what's your anticipation? Do, especially with the Republicans controlling the house?
1: Yeah, if I was a betting man and I was using your money, I would say they're gonna come to a deal. <laughs> they're gonna reach a solution uh, before that deadline sometime in June. The White House and President Biden, they have a couple options, uh, although some of them have raised eyebrows before. Uh, Biden can authorize the mint to create a trillion dollar coin. They can deposit that and that allow the U.S. to pay its bills. I do think there will be some sort of solution uh, towards the very end. But uh, what this does, this exposes just the dysfunction in Congress, the dysfunction in government. You have investors and bondholders wondering if the U.S. can function properly. Uh, And, you know, this, the, the more this, drags on. You have more questions if these two sides, this Republican majority, can work with the Biden White House. You also have to look at this from a practical political strategy situation here. You have Kevin McCarthy, who's presiding and the House majority leader with this very slim majority. He has to appease those hardliners who refuse to budge. Then he also has to uh, manage the moderate Republicans who are saying, look, it's just not worth it throwing the country into recession for, for these dramatic spending cuts, which is just not a good look, considering the Republicans got clobbered in those midterm elections. So there's a lot to look at. There's a lot to watch for in the coming weeks ahead. But I do believe that uh, this will be resolved. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, a Republican, also echoed that today, saying he doesn't believe that the U.S. will default. They never have before. They became awfully close back in 2011, but he doesn't see it happening going forward.
0: Okay, just another day in D.C. Thanks, Richard. CTV News' is Richard Madden in Washington. Back on this side of the border, the Ontario government is promising legislation to automatically recognize credentials for out-of-province health care workers.
5: These health care workers are highly trained. Other provinces and territories have the same high standards as we have here.
0: Called the as-of-right rules, the legislation would allow health workers from other provinces and territories to immediately start working in Ontario without having to register with one of the province's health regulatory colleges. The legislation would actually be the first of its kind. In Canada, and CTV Siobhan Morris is live for us at Queen's Park with the latest on this. Hi, Siobhan. How exactly would this work?
6: There's still a lot of questions about that. The government hasn't offered a whole lot of detail, but they got out in front of cameras today and said, look, we want to get uh, to break down any barriers, any impediment there might be to bringing people like nurses, doctors, other healthcare professionals to the front line. So this is what they're trying to do. But it's raised a lot of questions both on the political side and on the medical side about how this is all going to practically work and how checks and balances will still be in place.
0: And How much of a delay in, in that vein does the, the process place on workers who want to move to the province? Like, at this point, how much of a delay?
6: I've been asking that, too, because uh, and, and nobody seems to know. Uh, it, it might depend on where you're coming from, the kind of education you have, the kind of medical role you have. And, and so the devil is in those details. It, it's not clear that this will be a huge uh, savings up front, but that's still something we're trying to find out from the government and from regulatory bodies as well.
0: And this is the second big announcement on healthcare just this week from the premier. The other one was about alleviating the surgical backlog through private clinics. What's the opposition saying about this move?
6: The opposition about this one in particular, they're confounded. They they don't believe that there's this pool of nurses in particular uh, looking at Ontario saying, you know, I would move there if there wasn't this uh, bureaucratic barrier in the way. They point to uh, wage cap legislation, which they say has really stifled wages here in Ontario for people like nurses in particular. And they say that remains an impediment uh, to people coming here, that the quality of of life uh, in the job market is not great because we know that nurses here are burnt out now. I will say that is true, of course, right across the healthcare system, across the country. But the opposition also has questions about those checks and balances. I spoke uh, with a former ER doctor who's now uh, a member of the Ontario legislature, and he says that this could be dangerous, partially because... The government also wants to allow hospitals to have some flexibility to move people into jobs that aren't what they typically do. There's a lot of detail missing about how that would work, um, what, what sort of functions it would be used for. Doug Ford, the premier, only really gave an example of saying, well, during flu season, if there's a surge of cases, we can move people around a little bit.
0: Okay, thanks, Siobhan. CTV's Siobhan Morris, live for us at Queen's Park. And our front bench panel of premiers is set to dig into this issue a little bit later in the show. Kathleen Wynn, Christy Clark, and Daryl Dexter will join me for that. Coming up next, though, Ukraine is pleading with its allies for tanks to help it regain territory lost to the Russians. A big decision, and it could come as soon as tomorrow. Former Chief of Defence Staff Rick Hillier will be here to talk about that next.
4: There has been broad-based support to send military gear. We have sent so much since the start of the war. Uh, of course, there is this debate uh, going on on tanks, and here the issue is that this will be a next step in the, in the fight. It might be necessary, but I do understand the Germans and others are saying that you need a broad coalition.
0: A hugely significant meeting of Ukraine's allies is set to take place tomorrow as the war-torn country makes a plea for tanks to help it regain territory from the Russians. The request for the German-built tanks has become a sticking point, though, among allies. Should they put pressure on Germany to approve Ukraine's request for those tanks? Or is there legitimate concern over escalating the conflict with Russia? Let's bring in retired General Rick Hillier, the former chief of defense staff. He's now the chair of the Strategic Advisory Council for the Ukrainian World Congress. Hi, General Hillier. Great to see you. Thank you for making the time.
4: Bashi, my pleasure.
0: I appreciate it. Um, look, before we get into the politics of this decision, can I ask you, in, in layman's terms, to help myself and, and our, uh, our audience understand: What do these tanks do? How would they give Ukraine an advantage? Why does Ukraine want them so much?
4: Well, Ukraine has got a war to win—a war of survival for their very families, their nation—and there are about five or six things that you absolutely must have to win that war. One, you must have air defense to keep the 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 russian fighters and and drones off you two you must have long-range artillery and and precision artillery to reach those deep targets and third you must have the kind of vehicles that can close with and destroy the russians when they advance or when you are trying to take back the territory and those vehicles have got to be capable of, of doing that kind of advance under direct fire from the russians under artillery fire still surviving and winning the fight and And the Soviet-era tanks and fighting vehicles that the Ukrainians have, for the most part, simply are not up to that task. They cannot mount the kind of offensive operations that they need to to take the rest of their country back to defeat the Russians, drive them out of Ukraine. And the Leopard 2 tanks, so would the M1 and the Challenger 2, along with Bradley fighting vehicles or the Martyr, which is a German fighting vehicle, Or the cv90 the swedish vehicle would allow them to do that they're well protected their mobility is incredible their firepower is is awesome and their their technology and and ability to survive and to kill the enemy on the battlefield is incredible the leopard 2 stands above all of the other in the ability to do that that's why ukraine needs it to win this war
0: so, so Germany uh, makes these, manufactures these, and in effect, they have a veto of sorts over countries who, which may be willing to export them to Ukraine. And that's where this big meeting is, is focused on tomorrow, to essentially uh, see what Germany decides. Are you surprised at all at their hesitancy, given uh, the way the last 11 months has unfolded and the willingness that allies in general have shown to supply Ukraine with the military aid it needs?
4: Uh, Vashti, I've been surprised that no other country has stepped up and provided tanks to Ukraine up till now. I've not been as surprised about Germany. Somebody said to me some years ago, just a few years ago, that we spent 75 years trying to make sure that Germany would never go to war again without a tight coalition of allies around it, and we've succeeded. So we should not be surprised that Germany is reluctant, is reticent to provide tanks unless it's part of that tight coalition. And I think that's what we heard the German leaders say. They're probably getting close to a decision to provide those leopard tanks. They only want to do it as part of a coalition. I actually do believe that's why the Brits have announced that they're going to send a squadron of Challenger tanks to kind of break that log jam. And I do think there will be pressure. How much? I don't know. Obviously, at the meeting at Ramstein tomorrow off the NATO supplying equipment to Ukraine, and I do think we're getting close, but Germany is reluctant, and they do have the right of refusal of sending that Leopard tank because of end-user certificate, and which any weapon system will have. So I think there's pressure. I think Germany is getting close to the decision, but is not a done deed yet.
0: If they do give the go-ahead, Canada, my understanding is has 112 of them in use. Uh, do you think Canada should be sending some to Ukraine?
4: Actually, I've been saying for a year now and perhaps a little tiny bit more that I thought Canada should have uh, pulled 50 of the main battle tanks out of its fleet, uh, put together a spare parts package and ammunition package and done the same with our Lab 3 fighting vehicles and given, you know, done about 300 of those Lab 3 fighting vehicles and given Ukraine an armoured package that is modern and capable of doing what they need it to do. So I'd love to see Canada Take 50 Leopard 2 tanks. They're the finest battle tank in the world. They can help Ukraine win this war, and we could be a part of supporting them in doing that. I'd love to see it, and then replace them right away with a with a new tank produced it, you know, produced by Leopard by Germany again because it is the best battle tank in the world.
0: Okay, General Hillier, really appreciate your insights this evening. Thanks for making the time.
4: Actually, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Retired General Rick Hillier, former Chief of Defense Staff here in Canada. Our Premier's Premier's Rather Panel is still ahead on tonight's Power Play, but first, we'll catch you up on the other big political stories of the day. The List is next. Welcome back to Power Play on this Thursday evening. This is The List, a roundup of what's happening today. Police in Quebec have identified three people who died in an, ex- in an explosion rather, last week at a propane facility in a town about an hour north of Montreal. The victims have been formally identified as 65-year-old Céline Pilon, 65-year-old France Desrosiers, and 26-year-old Christophe Paradis. Authorities found the remains of three people on Monday at the site of Propane La Fontaine, just north of Montreal. As I mentioned, the building was engulfed in fire following an explosion. Investigators will remain at the scene for several more days. The family of a woman who died after an extended wait in a Nova Scotia emergency room is welcoming changes announced by the province. Any,
7: anything, any of those... um of those um, measures that they're implementing help a f- help someone avoid Charlene's fate or help a family avoid what we're going through, then that's absolutely worth um, um, what we've been doing in the last week and ringing the alarm bell about the state of emergency care.
0: Catherine Snow's mother-in-law, Charlene, died just after she'd returned home from a crowded emergency room at the end of December. This week, Nova Scotia announced a new plan that includes boosting health workers and patient advocate staff in emergency rooms. Massive protests and strikes in France today over government pension reform. <laughs> Those protests disrupted public transit, schools, and energy productions. The French government is raising the retirement age by two years to 64 and extending the pay-in period for pensions. President Emmanuel Macron insists the extra contributions are essential to maintain the system. The U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee has decided to investigate the Taylor Swift Ticketmaster debacle. A hearing will look into the high fees, long wait times and website failures on Ticketmaster. It will also explore the lack of competition since Ticketmaster merged with Live Nation. The hearing comes after many Swift fans were booted offline or waited in line for hours without being able to purchase tickets for her upcoming tour. Coming up, another big week for health care changes in this country. Does making changes to the public system still make you a political pariah? Our front bench of former provincial premiers will join me next. Stay with us. There's Christy Clark, Daryl Dexter and Kathleen Wynne. We're back in just a moment on Power Play.
5: A doctor from British Columbia or a nurse from Quebec? Who wants to come and work in Ontario shouldn't face barriers or bureaucratic delays to start providing care. These healthcare workers are highly trained. Other provinces and territories have the same high standards as we have here. So these changes, once implemented, will automatically recognize the credentials of healthcare workers registered in other provinces and territories so they can get to work as soon as they get here.
0: That was Ontario Premier Doug Ford announcing his government will introduce legislation that will automatically recognize the credentials of health care workers registered in other provinces and territories. That announcement comes just a few days after the Premier made waves for his plans to use private care clinics to tackle Ontario's surgical backlog. Will Ontario's private care plans shake up health care for good in Canada and could Ford's changes lead to a no-holds-barred battle among the provinces to recruit Much-needed healthcare workers. Let's bring in the front bench to weigh in on that subject. Joining us this evening: former British Columbia Premier Christy Clark, former Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne, and former Nova Scotia Premier Daryl Dexter. Hi, everyone. Great to see you again. If I remember correctly, last week at the end of our conversation, we 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 edged over to this private-public debate, and 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 I thought, hey, there might be an opportunity to discuss it again. Lo and behold, it's already here. (laughs) uh kathleen i'm going to start with you and and if for a moment you know we kind of put aside all of our partisan leanings i'm wondering if you think at this juncture versus let's say 10 years ago the notion of talking about anything to do with privatization is the same kind of political lightning that it used to be
8: well i think that right now vashi um people are very worried about access to health care you know so that in itself has made a um, that on its own has made a change in terms of people's willingness to have a conversation. And I think lots of, uh, lots of people are not averse to, I'm not averse to the notion of private delivery. As we talked about, a little bit about last week, there's been private delivery in provinces for years. There's been private delivery in Ontario for years. The piece that's getting muddled in Ontario right now is the distinction between for-profit and not-for-profit. And the government is not clarifying that, is not explaining why there need to be funds flowing to for-profit community health uh, organizations. And there's also not clarity that where it's been done, even in the country, it hasn't worked necessarily. I mean, the, the wait times for hip and knee surgeries in Ontario are better that in Alberta and Saskatchewan where there's more of this. So there is no clear explanation about why the for, why the profit motive has to be part of this but other than that I think people are people understand why there need to be uh, an expansion of community delivery of service.
0: I remember Christy covering an Alberta leadership election probably now 10 or 12 years ago between Allison <coughs> Redford and Gary Marr and the second Gary Mar said anything to do with privatization it ended. That is basically what clinched the, uh, the, the PC leadership there for Allison Redford. Do, do you think things have evolved since then?
7: I do. I think that people ha- are really starting to see the pointy end of the truth here, which is we cannot continue to think that we're going to have a publicly funded healthcare system that's universally accessible, which is what we all want by just throwing more money at it. There has to be structural change. We can't, we're you know, we're eating up, you know, a third to a quarter, a quarter to a third of provincial budgets already on it. It's going to squeeze out our ability to pay for education and all those other things. So I think people post-COVID and this after this crisis we've gone through are saying, and I think Doug Ford has identified this in spades, just please do something. Please figure something out. And we don't even really care about all the details as much as the fact that we want it to be better so you know i think that what premier ford has done is going in the right direction um i don't think it's nearly enough i mean it's not structural change to the system but it is going to have some impact and you know on the specifics of his 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 announcement hell yeah if you're if you're a doctor or a nurse or a trucker or a teacher or whatever it is anywhere in canada You should be able to work anywhere in Canada. We should have free trade of labour all across this country. So um, specifically on that front, I would say good for you, Doug Ford. Let's make sure we take on the special interests, the unions, the colleges and all of those professional bodies that hold back the free movement of labour and let people work where they want.
0: Uh, Daryl, I know that, uh, you know, for as long as I've been covering provincial politics, breaking down barriers of trade or other between provinces has been something that has been really difficult to actually get accomplished. Do do you think this is a good move or is it potentially, uh, I guess, a bit of a a hindrance to other provinces which are also facing staffing shortages?
5: No, I think the... um... The accreditation uh, equivalency is something that's long overdue, and and um, it's something that that um, you know we worked hard on in the at least in the Atlantic provinces with you know lots of other uh, trade groups to try and get that kind of equivalency uh, recognition. So no, I think that's that's um, I'm not sure that the way that he's. Going about doing it is necessarily going to be popular with everybody, but I think it is the right thing um, that we see a, a, a level of equivalency for healthcare workers across the country. I, I don't, I don't see that as a problem. Where I would differ, of course, is on the whole question of his approach to um, uh, the actual service standard and delivery, because I'm not sure how this is going to help the situation at all. Um, Every decision is made in a specific context, and this one is made in the context of a of a health human resource drought that we are existing that is existing across the across the country, so I'm not sure how you know taking people out of the public system and putting them into the private system is going to help. Um, there's no magic pool of healthcare. Human resources that the private system has access to that the public system doesn't. So they're essentially going to be drawing those workers out of uh, the the uh, the public system and impoverishing it. And I and I think you know likely making outcomes worse rather than better. And Vashi, you know,
8: a few seconds. Yeah, go ahead, Kathleen.
5: Well, just I was just going to say
8: he needed, and I I'm sorry to be partisan here, but he needed a positive announcement. Um, He's taking flack on the. The for profit delivery. Um, and and he needed announcement. It's I'm with Daryl though. It's kind of meaningless because everybody is having trouble with healthcare human resources. So, you know, it it's a but it's me, great. I think Let me let me be idea. the contrary voice. Which is to say uh, if you ha- if you move to yeah, I'll get you in one second,
0: the- Christy. Sorry. Okay. I promise you I'll get you just let Kathleen finish and then I'll get right to I will get oh, both sorry. those voices in Yeah, no, hands.
8: I'm done. I'm done. <laughs>
0: Okay, never mind. Uh, Christie, go ahead. Be the contrary voice. Well, to <laughs> say
7: you know, here's the benefit: you move people out of a heavily bureaucratic system, which is hugely expensive, which doesn't make decisions fast if at all, which is has all these incredible work rules, which make it very hard for people to do things well and quickly and wisely, and make and make changes on the go. And you move them into a system where the staff can make those decisions. Suddenly, you have. Staff that are way, way more efficient. Doctors that are able to fill up their slate with, um, with surgeries because there's always a space for, in which for them to work. So you're taking people out of an inefficient system and putting them into an efficient system. You will get more of their time. And that's part of yeah. the calculation. That's- I think the premium. That yeah, that, that's
5: me. that's just I, not that's I, just I, not true. That's just not, not true. Sure. Those are tropes about the public Medicare system that have long not been true. disproven, well, look, that wait, somehow the private okay, system I, is more efficient.
0: I, I got to take control of this because everyone's talking over each other. And I apologize. I'm going to take a quick down the middle approach and then take a break because we've got a whole other subject to talk about. Look, there are definitely concerns about uh, this, the lack of uh, staff already and that the private, you know, funneling money to the private sector uh, will lure those staff and leave the public system void. But there are also, you know, genuine concerns about the way that the public system is operating right now um, in, you know, to play devil's advocate. I think that the premier says at least that's what he's trying to address. I got to take a quick break. But all three of those former premiers are sticking around because on the other end of that break, we're going to talk about leadership and when you know it's the time to go that shocking resignation from New Zealand's Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, after the break.
2: But I'm not leaving because it was hard. Had that been the case, I probably would have departed two months into the job. I am leaving because with such a privileged role comes responsibility. The responsibility to know when you are the right person to lead and also when you are not. I know what this job takes and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice.
0: Jacinda Ardern there announcing she'll soon step down as Prime Minister of New Zealand. Not many people know what kind of pressures and challenges uh, politicians like Ardern face. My following guests, though, certainly have a clue. Let's bring back our front bench panel of former premiers Christy Clark, Kathleen Wynne and Daryl Dexter. Uh, Christy, I'll start with you and I'll preface my questions in this segment by saying, look, I'm not trying in any way to negate or deflate or diffuse a lot of the domestic things that were going on there. She was under a lot of fire for, you know, COVID restrictions for the state of the economy for a number of other things. But I thought the way that she said things last night was really interesting. And in particular, that comment, you know, I just don't have enough left in the tank. And I'm wondering if that resonated at all with you.
7: No, not really. I mean, I, I think, (laughs) I, I mean, I, can I just say, I think she was a real inspiration to women. Um, and I think that she, it was fabulous to see her, particularly the beginning of her term where she was, you know, she handled the, the those, that terrible tragedy, of the murders at the mosque in um, New Zealand, just with such grace. And it we just, she was a fantastic role model for women around the world who want to get into public life. So, uh, but I didn't really under, I don't, I didn't, I can't say that I ever felt that like I never was in politics and said, you know, I just don't have it in me anymore to keep doing this. Um, but you know, it's it is a really hard job. And you've, she had a little, she has a little girl, and I think probably wanted to spend time with her. And facing a tough election and contemplating another four years of you know that would 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 have brought her term total term to nine nine years. I think you know it's a very personal decision, and you've just got to respect people who want to make that decision. But did I ever think to myself? Oh, you know, this is really hard, and I'm kind of done with that. No, I can't. I didn't, but I totally respect where she's at.
0: I, I appreciate the honesty, Kathleen. How how about you? Did did the way she framed it resonate with you?
8: I'm kind of with Christy. <laughs> I, uh, I I didn't I didn't actually uh, I didn't actually feel that either. Um, but I had. I had my own, uh, my own dilemmas, obviously, at the end of our term, um, we'd been there as Liberals for a long time. And I had to make a I had to make a tough decision um, about whether to run in the 2018 election or not. And there are lots of people within the party who think I shouldn't have run. um, And I, I weighed, uh, I weighed the options. I mean, that's another that's another story. But Um, But I think that, (laughs) as Christy says, it's a personal decision and you, you know, you have to be true to yourself. I I don't think we've seen the last of her. I think she's been a terrific leader and I hope she plays a role globally um, or even within New Zealand in the future. But um, I loved the authenticity of her throughout her time. You know, she was so clear about where she was. She she was. Um, unguarded in her interactions with her kids and uh, and I just think that, I think she really, um, there, there was a crazy uh, headline in the BBC that said, you know, can women have it all or can women do it all, which is ridiculous. Ugh. She did do it all. We can do it all and she demonstrated that, you know and that's very important. That
0: headline is so depressing. Uh, Daryl, oh. <laughs> <Darryl>, um <laughs> Uh, What about you? I mean, part of what she she talked about, and both Christy and Kathleen have alluded to this, is like the the concept of knowing when to go, especially in the context of a political career. What are your thoughts on that?
5: Well, first, let me just say that uh, I I agree with both Kathleen and and Christy. I mean, she, you know, just her presence on the international stage was, you know, really quite remarkable. And, uh, you know, there's, I think people kind of widely admired the way that she kind of took on a lot of the kind of criticism that was leveled at her and uh, in the i, I don 't know if she mentioned this or not in her speech, but of course, a lot of this you know takes place in this in online environment where there 's just kind of no holds barred anymore in terms of the the style and type of criticism that gets leveled at at, at uh, political figures so um, she, she took a lot of that on and, and I, you know, I do certainly understand, you know, how, um, depleting that, that, that can be, but I don't think there was ever a time and, and this might, you know, this is, you know, part of kind of when you're in the fight, you don't necessarily feel like, oh, I just can't go on. But I think, uh, after I was. Uh, out of political life. It took me, you know, kind of five or six months to kind of really understand kind of how exhausted I really was physically, intellectually, emotionally, um, uh, because you're, you know, you're so tied up and the work that you're doing is so significant. The people that you're working with mean so much to you that you don't really uh, necessarily feel that it's, it's hard or, I, you know, I can't go on. Uh, it's only, it was, for me, it was kind of after the fact that I, uh, you know, uh, felt, uh, uh, you know, right. after six months, it was my, my first really good night's sleep.
0: <laughs> I just have about a minute left, Christy. I'll, I'll give the last word to you. Um, Daryl kind of pointed to it, but and and this is certainly not just unique to uh, Jacinda Ardern. But the level of vitriol, the you know, we always talk about like, are can you still recruit good people into politics? Do you worry about that?
7: Always, always. I talk to women all the time, and I still try and get them to run for public office with any party. They almost always say no, and they say no because they say. Some will say, well, look what you went through, Christy. Look at all the things that people said about you. That is the online environment, the vitriol, the anger, the just the anonymous, terrible things that people say. It really makes it hard to, make, to encourage women to get into politics. And I know that that was probably part of Prime Minister um, Ahern's um, issue. I, I felt it. Kathleen felt it even far worse than I did. It's not easy, it's not getting easier, and it makes it very difficult for women to make sure, to for all of us to make sure we have the benefit of women representing half of the parliaments, uh, you know, the parliamentary seats in our country.
0: No kidding. Okay, well, my guess is this becomes part of our conversation going forward, too. Thanks very much, all three of you, for making time for the discussion tonight. Christy Clark, Cla- Kathleen Wynn, and Daryl Dexter. Uh, before I leave you, I do want to talk a little bit about today's takeaway. We are keeping our eyes posted for tomorrow's big meeting in Ramstein between uh, Ukraine's allies and Ukraine. Of course, the big Ukrainian ask right now is all about tanks. They need them in order to regain territory taken by Russia. Germany holds a sort of veto over the export of those tanks. They're called Leopard 2 tanks. Uh, We spoke with former Chief of Defense Staff General Rick Hillier about whether or not, if Germany does give the go-ahead, should Canada provide some of their tanks to Ukraine? Here's what he said.
4: See, I've been saying for a year now, and perhaps a little tiny bit more, that I thought Canada should have uh, pulled 50 of the main battle tanks out of its fleet Uh, put together a spare parts package and ammunition package and done the same with our Lab 3 fighting vehicles and given, you know, done about 300 of those Lab 3 fighting vehicles and given Ukraine an armored package that is modern and capable of doing what they need it to do. So I'd love to see Canada take 50 Leopard 2 tanks. They're the finest battle tank in the world. They can help Ukraine win this war and we could be a part of supporting them in doing that.
0: Canada's Canada's defence minister has yet to answer specific questions about whether Canada is willing to send those tanks, but certainly says they will entertain any and all specific asks from Ukraine. We'll keep our eyes peeled, as I said, for that meeting in Ramstein tomorrow. Right now, though, I'll hand things over to my colleague, Morella Fernandez. That's it for Power Play tonight. Have a great evening.